Thanks for downloading and welcome to Take Orally, the podcast recorded at Stream Queen's Medical Centre at Nottingham. In this episode, we'll be discussing therapeutics, antithrombotics, part one, antiplatelets. As ever, all information is correct at the time of recording. All guidelines mentioned are correct for Nottingham University Hospital's NHS Trust. Other trust guidelines may vary. All views and opinions are the speaker's own. Hello, welcome back to Take Orally. Uh, this is another therapeutic special, and that means that we brought along our favourite pharmacist in the whole wide world, uh, Canal Gohill. Hello, Canal. Morning, Dr. Thomas. Always a pleasure. How are you today? All is well. All is well. Excellent. We're going to be talking about some very interesting drugs, very critical drugs. Excellent. So this is uh, antithrombotics, big subject. We'll divide it into two parts. In this first part, we're going to be taking on the antiplatelets. Absolutely. So when we talk about antithrombotic therapy, we talk about messing around with the hemostasis of the blood in terms of its ability to clot and or form a thrombus. Um, so to give you, go back to the first principles to a certain extent, we've got our normal tangible blood vessel that's working nice and healthy. If there is some sort of an insult to that blood vessel, whether it be a large blood vessel, a vein, a capillary, doesn't particularly matter. Um, there's an insult to that and we get a disruption in the endothelium of this blood vessel. Um, of, of whatever type, so that could be caused by trauma, that could be caused by a cut, that could be caused by disease of the vessel itself. Um, now with that insult of the endothelial, um, we get uh, collagen fibres which are exposed um, in the walls of the endothelial cell. Um, this is the protein that gives the, gives the blood vessel its elasticity and keeps it together basically. Now when that collagen is exposed, um, when the endothelium is disrupted, um, you will start to have platelets that will that are attracted to these collagen fibres. Various chemical processes that make it stick to that collagen fibre. You then get another chemical mediator that's put out by the platelets uh, called thromboxane. Thrombex, thromboxane will um, send signals to recruit other platelets and fibrin to form a mesh clot. So you'll end up with platelets stacked on fibrin, stacked on red blood cells, stacked on more fibrin, stacked on more platelets. And as a result, you get a clot formation. So a, a clot is a good thing. A clot stops bleeding from that blood vessel. Um, the problem comes when that gets so big or becomes dislodged that it becomes a thrombus. So when we talk about uh, antithrombotic therapy, we talk about drugs that can affect this process and there's two main ways we can affect this process. Number one, we can take out the platelets to stop the initial aggregation of the platelets coming together. So the initial phases of that clot formation. Um, the other way we can attack it is that other chemical, the fibrin strands, um, which, which are again aggregated and brought together to, to form this clot. Um, and that, the way you'd affect that is through the coagulation cascade. So antiplatelets, when we're targeting platelets, anticoagulants when we're targeting fibrin. Mm -hmm. So in terms of the, the common drugs and the common conditions um, that we'd use it for, obviously it's not necessarily a good thing to be prescribing these antiplatelet drugs to normal fit and healthy people. We need our platelets to work properly to prevent us from hemorrhaging, to, from traumatic things, uh, from, from normal day-to-day -day occurrences where you cut yourself. You don't want your platelets inactivated clotting your vessel is, is a good thing that will stop you from bleeding out. The problem comes wherein you're at a risk of that vessel being occluded. So when we use antiplatelet therapy, generally, probably more than 90% of the time now, 
we use it because of a patient with atherosclerotic disease. They have an, athero an atheroma. So this is a situation where blood vessels are narrowed by atherosclerotic plaques. And these plaques are made up of lipids and calcium, and they endothelialize, which means they get, they get very much narrowed. Um, now, the problem with that is, if there is then an insult to an atherosclerotic lesion, that area of the blood cell becomes very, very narrow. And when you get the platelets aggregating with its fibrin clots, etc., it will occlude that entire vessel. If you occlude that vessel, you're going to end up with ischemia to whichever part that you're there. So potentially the heart, potentially the brain. And if it was a vascular issue in the feet or the legs, it can be in these sort of things. So in these kind of situations, patients with diagnosed atherosclerotic disease or at risk of atherosclerotic disease, the mainstay of treatment is antiplatelet therapy. Um, there is some use for anticoagulants in other circumstances, but generally the mainstay for your, for your atherosclerotic disease is, is to knock out the platelets. Uh, in terms of, like we said, the main two conditions that you're going to see patients on, on antiplatelets is um, ischemic, ischemic cardiac disease. So if there's some level of ischemia in their, their coronary arteries, um, which we need to protect from being occluded. Uh, or the other one is if they've had a stroke or are at a very high risk of stroke, which usually means they've got atherosclerotic disease in their, sometimes their carotid arteries or other places as well in their, in their body. Um, and so the risk benefit for these people is, is we need to keep their vessels nice and clean, the blood needs to flow, keep flowing through them, and we need to minimise that risk of disruption of the atherosclerotic plaques. Take a sip of coffee. <laughs> uh, so these are the key things. So when we're talking about the drugs, so the most common drug and probably the oldest drug that we use as an antiplatelet is aspirin. Mm -hmm. So aspirin, as, as we know, was actually originally developed as a painkiller, very effective painkiller, um, a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory uh, that has its anti-inflammatory and analgesic properties. Um, and it exerts those effects through an enzyme called COX-2. Um, which is responsible for, for, for producing prostaglandins that are inflammatory and, and cause pain. So a very, very effective um, painkiller. But what we found at lower doses, so at a 75 milligram dose, um, which is the antiplatelet dose of aspirin, you'll get very little COX-2 inhibition, but you'll get COX-1 inhibition. COX-1 is an enzyme that's associated with platelets, and it's a chemical mediator um, that causes that signal of the um, uh, thromboxane that the platelets put out to aggregate more, patient, uh, more platelets, um, it'll block that mechanism irreversibly. So as soon as you give aspirin and aspirin enters a platelet, you'll potentially completely block its ability to use thromboxane. So you, in theory, in the, in the most simplistic way, you're completely reducing the stickiness of that platelet. Mm. Um, now, initially, 75 milligram of aspirin is not necessarily going to be, a, it takes a while for it to be able to knock out enough platelets, which is why you'll find often when we're in an acute coronary syndrome kind of situation or in an acute stroke syndrome, we usually will start with a 300 milligram dose of aspirin. This is a loading dose. So it's effectively a strategy to knock out as many platelets as you can without going pro-thrombotic by hitting the, the COX-2 enzyme because COX-2 is actually associated with um, with um, causing thrombosis down the line from various mechanisms. Now, 
aspirin mainstay for particularly for heart disease, uh, for coronary artery disease and ischemic heart disease, there's a lot of evidence to say um, this prevents people from heart attacks and prevents mortality. Um, so at the moment, aspirin is, is the mainstay if people can tolerate it um, for anybody that's had an MI or anybody that's got very established atherosclerotic disease of their, of their arteries or even an unstable angina. Um, most patients you'll find on aspirin. Mm. Um, probably the one that's become the second most popular now um, is a drug called clopidogrel, um, which is what we call a P2Y um, glycoprotein inhibitor. So it effectively does the same job as aspirin by a virus, slightly different mechanism. So it binds to the outside of the platelet cell um, and it will stop stickiness aggregation between the platelets and the fibrin clots mm -hmm. as a result. Mm -hmm. um, it's slightly more potent than aspirin, so you get a more potent effect from clopidogrel than you will from aspirin. And as a result, you'll potentially get a slightly higher bleed risk uh, also. Um, but it is, has found to be very, very effective and you can even use it in combination with aspirin. So in patients that have got um, having an MI or have had an MI um, that we've used a percutaneous coronary intervention or if we're treating them medically after a diagnosed um, coronary event, we'll often use both of these drugs together. Yeah, because that's dual antiplatelet. Yeah, so dual antiplatelet, which is, which is the phrase that um, where we're, we're going for a very aggressive antiplatelet regime um, when somebody's at very, very high risk. So once they've had this stroke or they've had this um, MI, it's, it's dual antiplatelets aren't used that much in stroke, um, but they're used quite a lot in MI. Um, quite simply because if somebody has had an MI, we, are, we know that they've got a very, very narrowed coronary artery potentially. Uh, and we know there's potentially an insult to that atherosclerotic plaque in the coronary artery that's caused, that's caused the acute precipitation of the, of the MI. Because of that, you've got that vessel, so go back, going back to the vessel um, with its endothelial insult, um, it's got an unhealed endothelial layer, and you're gonna potentially, even after the MI, after you've cleared it or after you've got symptomatic relief, there's still quite a possibility that that's going to uh, clog up again with a, with a platelet clot. So that's where we go very, very aggressive with um, with antiplatelet therapy, and you'll often be using aspirin and clopidogrel at the same time to inhibit those platelets um, from two different mechanisms. Um, they're most likely the two the two antiplatelets that you use most often, and particularly if somebody's had so to to go down the therapy the, the diagnostic pathway. Um, Let's say you've got a patient who has got um, who, who comes in with a chest pain that we diagnose with a stable angina. Mm. Um, they then sort of say in an outpatient situation they have um, something like a, a coronary artery perfusion scan, and we find some level of atherosclerotic disease in their in their coronary arteries. This is usually the situation where a single antiplatelet, which if they can tolerate it, aspirin. Um, is going to be is going to be indicated because they're at high risk of having that MI. Sure. So usually at that point, we'll potentially offer them offer them aspirin to protect that atherosclerotic lesion from from getting disrupted um, and causing an MI further down the line. That's depending on the, the bleed risk that that patient will have at that time. So if they've got a particularly high bleed risk, as we know, all the antiplatelets will carry a bleed risk because of their innate mechanism of action. Um, then we'll have to look at the risk risk benefit of that. Um, now, that's a primary prevention strategy because obviously they haven't had an MI at this point. Um, a secondary prevention strategy is once they've been diagnosed with a STEMI or an NSTEMI. Yeah. 
Um, so an NSEMI type situation, um, depending on whether they were treating them medically, so i.e. no surgical intervention, no percutaneous intervention, they will often be on, will often, because of the risk of, the, of, of them clotting again, will often put them on aspirin and clopidogrel for, for 12 months. So that, that patient will usually get dual antiplatelets for, so say a month or a year, sorry, a year I meant, um, aspirin and clopidogrel for one year, where after, if they don't have any further events, we can downgrade them to a single antiplatelet for continued prophylaxis. That's 75 milligrams of each one day. 75 milligrams, that's right. So aspirin 75 milligram, clopidogrel 75 milligram. When we load, we initially when we're using it, like we said, to get the platelets knocked out, we'll be using a 300 milligram dose of each and potentially an unlicensed 600 milligram if they're going for the, the clopidogrel that is only um, if they're potentially going for a percutaneous intervention. Sure. Now, moving on to the percutaneous intervention, so if, if we're treating them actively and we're putting some stents in their coronary vessels, um, if you put a stent in a vessel, you're also at a very, very high risk of, of forming another thrombus, of, of occluding that vessel. It makes sense because you're narrowing, you've got an existing narrowed artery um, and you're putting something in there to prop it open. That is a foreign body um, to the to the to the body, so the body will recognise it as a foreign um, a foreign body and treat it appropriately. So you can get inflammatory mediators. Um, you can get basically the vessel doing what it can to reject this foreign body. So in the old days, we used to use bare metal drug um, drug stents. So they usually just used to go in with a little metal stem to prop it open, um, and after about a month or two the body would endothelialize that stent and generally at that point you're at a lower risk of, of having what we call a stent thrombosis. Um, so we would only necessarily need to treat very, very aggressively with antiplatelets for a couple of months, maybe sure. one to three months, because um, the body gets used to it, the skin grows around that stent and then you're quite happy. Now, these days, much more often used are the what we call drug eluting stents. So these are stents that are still metal or some sort of composite, but they've got impregnated in them an immunosuppressant. So the immunosuppressant's really good because it fools the body into thinking that it's not necessarily a foreign body and it dampens down that immune response to that, um, to that stent. Um, but because of that, unfortunately, it doesn't endothelialize very well. So it is still a body that can chop up some of the blood that's flowing through it. So in that case, we need to use dual antiplatelets for quite a considerable amount longer. So potentially up to usually 12 months after a drug eluting stent, we will we'll be giving dual antiplatelets for. Um, strokes, slightly different. Um, strokes of the atherosclerotic variety. So when we're talking about ischemic strokes, we talk about cardioembolic strokes, mm. which are caused by say a patient with AF, yeah. versus an, an atherosclerotic stroke. So where a patient doesn't have AF, they have risk factors for cardiovascular disease, and they might have some, some level of atherosclerosis in their in their cerebral arteries and their carotid arteries. Um, if it's the latter, then again, they will have antiplatelet therapy. There's no real evidence for using dual antiplatelets in these patient types. Um, clopidogrel is currently the most superior option for, for that patient profile. So usually they're potentially loaded with aspirin during the acute phases of an ischemic stroke. And then longer term, we'll put them on monotherapy with clopidogrel, sure. um, which has got good evidence to prevent further strokes. So they'd usually be your two key indications for antiplatelets. 
What about patients, say, you, you mentioned AF, so mm-hmm. you can use our chat thoracic score on these patients, can't we? Absolutely. Work out their, their ischemic stroke risk, and, mm-hmm. and those patients can be put on an antiplatelet treatment, can't they? No, so this is, this is a, a, a slight um, historical misconception now. So AF, obviously, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about it when we, when we go into part two of this podcast, but AF is a, is a situation where you're getting pooling of, of blood and um, in, in, in the atrial appendages uh, because of the, the irregular heartbeat. Uh, and because of that, blood hardens, it clots, and it throws off the clot. Now, historically, for patients that have been diagnosed with this condition, uh, but what we would call a low CHADS-VATS risk, so I believe back then it was a CHADS-VATS of one, um, so lowish risk, but still a risk of throwing a stroke from, from their AF. We used to give them aspirin. Um, and if you think about it, it makes sense. If you think about the, um, the mechanism we talked about previously from how, how these antiplatelets will stop a clot from forming. More recent evidence has said that aspirin is considerably more ineffective than, than anticoagulant therapy. So targeting those, targeting those fibrin strands rather than the platelets themselves. Sure. So much so that now NICE guidance on, on AF um, doesn't recommend using aspirin at any point um, mm. in AF. So the current guidance is if your CHADVAS score is zero or you have little to no risk, you shouldn't be using an anticoagulant or an antiplatelet because they innately will increase your bleeding risk. Um, if you do score for your CHADVAS to make you qualified, which would either be one or two, depending on your, your gender, then you should go straight onto an anticoagulant. Quite simply because the risk of bleeding in the anticoagulant is not any higher than it would be on aspirin. There's some, some quite robust evidence that's come out to say that's true but your benefit in terms of preventing a stroke is considerably higher by taking an anticoagulant of some description versus the antiplatelet. So a key message from this is we should not be using antiplatelets in AF. There's not a lot of evidence for it. And if anything, there's evidence to say it causes harm long-term mm. without any real efficacy. We still see a lot of patients yep. coming to the most department with AF mm. on aspirin. You absolutely will. Um, I mean, as we said, it was a historical thing that was done for years, probably since the 90s. So these patients, if they have I love that food, the 90s qualifies as a long time. That's it. So I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a, not a young man anymore. Yeah, the 90s was still a long time ago to me. <laughs> so, but yeah, but so you, you must see that as a, pharm- as a pharmacist. Absolutely. Well, I mean, I certainly do as a, as a doctor, but as a pharmacist, you must then see you know elderly patient on AF with AF mm. who's on 75 milligrams a day of aspirin. Absolutely, you, you'll see it a lot. I think in in lots of people's practice, you'll you'll find people people on slightly older fashion treatments. Um, there's an argument, and there's there's different opinions here from different different clinicians. But my opinion is, if you're detecting a patient like this who doesn't actually have a history of ischemic heart disease, um, who doesn't have a history of MI or stroke, who's on aspirin, and you're sure that indication is AF, then at the very least we should be putting this your evidence to the, that patient profile if we can, mm. and offering them an anticoagulant. The, the evidence is almost incontrovertible in terms of the benefit from that. Um, and obviously, if you find your patients coming in on aspirin for AF with a GI bleed, then you've got even yeah. more evidence to, to say that. So mm. reviewing the patient profiles is, is really important. Sure. Um, do you write to the doctors then? Yeah. Do you write to their GP when you see that? Then? Absolutely. So if we can't action it ourselves, so for example, if we've got a patient like that in the emergency department, this could be, a, this could be an incidental finding. Um, 
it's not always the best environment to have that conversation because it is quite a it's quite a difficult conversation with, with where you need a lot of time to weigh it up. Mm. There's risks associated with anticoagulants, risk associated with antiplatelets. Um, so we won't necessarily change the treatment there and then, but I, I'd often write to GPs to say to consider an anticoagulant, or if the patient's not wanting anything altogether, depending mm. on their child's asterisk, stopping, stopping it dead um, and mm. pointing the risks out. So we're chatting a bit about those two key um, antiplatelets, the ones that you'll most likely see um, a lot in day-to-day -day practice. Now, aspirin allergy is a big problem. Um, there, there's an X amount of the, quite a few people are associated with having aspirin allergies. There is hypersensitivities associated with it. Um, clopidogrel is your alternative option for, um, for, anti, for, for as an antiplatelet when patient can't tolerate aspirin as first sign. In almost every case, you can use clopidogrel as your alternate option. Um, couple of, another drug that's related to clopidogrel that's become a little bit more in use these days is a drug called prazogrel. Mm -hmm. So it has an identical mechanism of action to clopidogrel, um, same P2Y receptor and, and antagonist, uh, and works on those fibrin clots. Um, it's been theorized to be slightly more potent um, and as a result, it's an option for your higher risk um, secondary prevention type patients. We also so, use it in the acute uh, here at uh, QMC. We use it for patients uh, having a STEMI. Yeah, uh, we'll, we, we will give them 60 milligrams of prasugrel. Absolutely, because if their STEMI will carry a higher risk of mortality than then STEMI, you want a more potent antiplatelet as a result. So prasugrel at loading dose and at a longer term dose if they've got a high mortality issue. Um, is, is another option. But in terms of this mechanism of action, it's very, very similar to, um, to clopidogrel. Super clopidogrel, the cardiologist called it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's not, not unreasonable to call it that. Um, but yeah, we'd be using it in our patients with, with slightly higher grade scores and slightly higher risk of mortality to give them more aggressive antiplatelet therapy. That being said, we'd be giving it with aspirin again. So it's always going to be that dual, dual therapy in the acute phase. Um, another slightly newer drug is a, a drug called Ticagrelor. Mm. Um, which is a um, probably the newest of the antiplatelet therapies. Um, very potent stuff. Um, has a slightly different mechanism of action, um, though it still works on surface receptors. Um, so it has a similar mechanism of action to clopidogrel and prasugrel. Uh, and again, this is an option in some areas. We don't actually use it as much here at NUH, um, but I know in London, where I came from, we use a lot of it. Again, in your slightly higher um, your higher grade scores, your higher mortalities, um, it's an option as a dual antiplatelet in conjunction with aspirin. Sure. Um, so it's kind of an alternative to prasugrel to a certain extent, but we'll, we'll hit platelets from a different, slightly different angle. Um, an older antiplatelet, which is, which is a little bit out of fashion now, is a drug called diperidamol. Um, this used to be the mainstay of stroke antiplatelet um, therapy. So aspirin and diperidamol, um, we used to use very, very often for strokes and TIAs. Sure. Um, diperidamol has been theorized to also have some vaso, uh, vasodilatory um, mechanisms of action as well. So it was very popular for a while. Sure. Um, generally now, there was a large um, piece of work that was done that was found that aspirin diperidamol was equally efficacious as clopidogrel on its own. Mm -hmm. So generally now we offer our patients uh, the one drug, if we can give them one drug over two drugs to, for the same effect, we'll always try and do that. And obviously it's more cost effective to, to use that as well. So generally clopidogrel is what we use in strokes, though aspirin and diperidamol as a combination are a useful alternative to that. Um, 
also diprimol generally on its own we, we consider it quite a weak antiplatelet in its, in its own right so you'd, you'd almost never use it as a as, a, as monotherapy uh, it would have to be used with aspirin um, sure. on the other side of it um, a couple of other ones to mention is the is the p-glycoprotein inhibitors which are the iv antiplatelets um, which we can use potentially for stemmies and endstemmies um, when we're when the cardiologists are undergoing their percutaneous interventions. Um, so the most common of those two is a drug called turofaban uh, tar- uh, and um which are both IV antiplatelets, very potent, short-acting, um, which we can use literally when they're in those coronary arteries, um, putting the stents in to make sure that nothing's going to happen. Um, so those are the key ones. There are a few other ones, but they're literally usually the only ones you're going to see in practice. Um, they all carry bleeding risks associated. I was going to say, so if we're starting, you know, if we're starting our patients on antiplatelets, I mean, there's different scores we can use. We can use like the Hasbled score as well to look at a patient's bleeding risk and things. But mm-hmm. what do we actually need to be saying to our patients when we're starting them on? The yeah, end? absolutely. I mean, with with all of these antiplatelets, so aspirin, clopidogrel, what have you, their their biggest bleed risk is, is usually a GI risk, particularly with aspirin. So, aspirin itself will potentially inhibit gut um, gut mucosal lining, and as a result, slightly higher risk of ulceration. Um, when we're starting any of these drugs, we need to be making them aware of bleeding risk. So, classically, blood in the stool. So, these are usually associated with upper GI bleeds. Mm. So, safe safety netting them in terms of black tarry stools, um, signs and symptoms associated with anemia that could sort of uh, point towards blood loss, um, but also hematemesis, um, blood coming up in the other direction. Anything like that would be an absolute contraindication to keep using, and they'll need medical attention quite sure. um, quite early on. Um, so we do have to consider uh, protecting these patients from GI bleeds. Um, one of the strategies is to give them gastroprotective therapy, um, and it's a little bit of a debate among clinicians at the moment on who should specifically receive these, uh, and what drug it should be, and what um, what dose you should use. So. Generally, as it stands now, um, not all patients on an antiplatelet, whichever one they might need, need gastro protection. You would have to look at their individual risk. When you're assessing their risk, you need to be looking at their age. So patients over the age of 65, um, known to have a higher risk of of GI complications from antiplatelets. Um, Patients with chronic kidney disease and other concomitant um, cardiovascular conditions, known potentially to have a higher risk of ulcers. Um, and also if they're on any, on, on any other drugs um, that also can affect the GI tract. So ones that are quite classic are pain-killing NSAIDs, um, SSRIs will cause problems like that. And obviously if they do turn out to be on an anticoagulant as well as an antiplatelet, then that's a very high risk. Mm-hmm. Um, also patients with a history of ulcer. So if they, they have had a history of ulcer in the past or, or an active healing ulcer, um, then we should be thinking about gastro-protecting them. In terms of your options, um, PPIs tend to be the most popular. Um, Omeprazole or Lanzoprazole, good evidence for both to say that they can reduce the incidence of GI bleeds in patient in these, this patient profile. Proton pump inhibitor. Proton pump inhibitors, absolutely. So stopping some of the um, some of the acidity in the stomach. Um, one thing to note is that clopidogrel, in particular. Uh, clopidogrel is not an active pharmacological drug in its own right. Uh, it's actually a pro-drug. 
So it needs to be absorbed into the body, it needs to hit the liver, and the liver will convert it into its active metabolite. Now, there's some theories saying that PPIs, proton pump inhibitors, actually stop that change from happening mm. um, because of the cytochrome P450 system in the, in the liver, uh, particularly omeprazole it's associated with. Um, so there's a theoretical interaction between clopidogrel and omeprazole whereby it reduces the efficiency of, um, of clopidogrel. The, the debate is out whether that's... Um, whether that interaction is clinically significant or yeah. not. Um, but generally, as clinicians now, just because of the risk, we'll use either an alternative PPI. So Lanzoprazole tends to be the one that we'll, we'll use if they're on clopidogrel. Mm. Seems to have a cleaner profile. Uh, or we'll use a H2 antagonist. So mm. ranitidine is yeah. another option. Um, these are your basic basic options for gastroprotection in, in, in patients with antiplatelets. And obviously, once they come off a, come off a dual antiplatelets or they're... Um, their risk factors change, then we should be looking to stop the PPIs because we know proton pump inhibitors over a long period of time carry problems with renal uh, renal problems. They carry risks of osteoporosis and electrolyte disturbance. So we don't really want people on proton pump inhibitors. Um, sure. Gastric acid suppression um, if we don't have if, if we don't need them to be on them. We'll, we'll put up some links to uh, the Chad Task score and has bled scores on the on the blog entry at uh, www.takeorally.com. I think, can we consider platelets, anti-platelet treatment covered now? Yeah, I think so. I suppose I'd just say it last bit, which is like, they are high-risk drugs. You see a lot of people on them, they're high-risk drugs. Yeah. Um, we need to make sure that we've got, so particularly when we're starting antiplatelets, starting um, these drugs for particular conditions, documentation of when we start them, for how long, for what indication, sure. is absolutely key. Because like you just you just gave us an example there, when, when you see somebody on aspirin um, for AF from 20 years ago, it becomes really difficult to find out the documentation for that. Sure. Um, so if we're starting antiplatelets, we're starting it for this in this circumstance, um, for this long to be reviewed in this situation, just so you know. Um, and basically, routine use of aspirin for primary prevention, not in any of these situations that we've described today, there is no evidence for it, and we shouldn't be advocating aspirin for things like cancer prevention and what I call like daily mail type aspirin. Yeah. Um, you'll find a lot of pa you'll find a lot of patients will buy it's it's an over the counter medicine. You can buy a hundred aspirin from any chemist. Um, and you'll find people will be taking them just happily thinking they're good for their health. Um, yeah. Where we know um, there's some quite big implications in terms of bleeding associated with them when patients really don't need them. And they might not tell you. Yeah, and that's possibly. Yeah, but it's interesting that yeah, the the Daily Mail mm. is good for my heart. It could cure cancer. Therefore, I yeah, I have bought and I've self started myself on an aspirin a day. There's some. Yeah, I remember reading um, a, a tiny little um, expert opinion piece on aspirin for preventing vascular dementia. It was a small opinion piece. I mean, it makes logical sense. You would have thought if you can protect against atherosclerotic and then and disease in the in the brain, then you can prevent some yeah. dementia. That's not a proper study, and the risk benefit of doing that is not 
fully understood yet. Sure. So we need to, any patient taking aspirin, what we think is inappropriate, we need to be challenging it and, and putting, a, putting a plan in place for why they're on it and getting them off it potentially. There's a reason why the Daily Mail isn't a scientific Paper. This is true. This is true. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you think of its politics. Um, yeah, I think statins falls into that as well. I mean, we're going a little bit as, as, the, as the, yeah. a wonder drug. Of, yeah. So stat- statins, it's actually been theorised that they have got a, a mild antiplatelet activity in their own right because of their mechanism of action. Um, they'll work slightly differently, so they're, they're going to be a mainstay. So anybody on an antiplatelet will usually be needing a statin as well yeah. because of how we know the, the atherosclerotic lesions work they are fat mixed with calcium mixed sure. with um, and endothelialized so stopping that fat deposition on the vessels um, and stopping that cholesterol is, is their key mechanism of action yeah. but as I say it's been theorised that they, they do block off platelet aggregation as well um, I don't think the mechanism is that well understood mm-hmm. um, the the classic clinical interpretation of that is you'll find if a patient has got had a stroke um, they'll often need statin therapy um, because that's the evidence is good for it but we never start it in the acute phases because there's a theorized risk of hemorrhagic transformation okay so because of its anti antiplatelet effect in, com- in combination with the aspirin that we would be giving them if they have an ischemic stroke um, there's a there's a risk of that um, that hemorrhagic transformation Mm-hmm. Interesting one. Um, Interesting. Not very well understood, but the um, statins, the evidence is quite clear. Second yeah. intervention, statins work. Um, patients are a bit scared to take them now. Um, I kind of agree with the argument for primary prevention. So if they've not had an MI, if they've not got raised cholesterol, um, just bumming people on statins, the risk of them getting the myopathies and the, um, the the muscle aches and pains and things like that versus the protection they're getting is not as clear cut. Um, so I think there's a reasonable discussion to be had there. Sure. When it comes to a patient who's got really gunked up coronary arteries, yeah. uh, that's had an MI, um, got gunked up carotid arteries, um, and has had a stroke, the evidence is pretty strong to say statins stop people from dying and mm. stop people from having further strokes. Um, now, it's our duty, I think, to be able to, po- to point out the strength of that evidence to our patients. Because mm-hmm. um, you will find patients that will say, I've had it a lot when I worked in hyperacute stroke, saying, well, I've read a lot about statins and uh, I don't really want to take them. Um, it is our responsibility to point it out, but obviously there is always an element of patient choice. Yeah. Um, but I think a lot, of the, a lot of the debate is more around primary prevention rather than secondary prevention. Sure. Cool. Um, and I think one final point, aspirin comes in a dispersible form. So if you have a patient who says, I can't take tablets and you're in that acute stage, you can get dispersible aspirin. Absolutely. And yeah. you drink it. Yeah, aspirin comes dispersible. So you can, you can, put, it, you can put it in water and they can drink it. It's nice and soluble. Um, you can swallow a dispersible aspirin tablet whole if they prefer to do that. There's no problem with doing that whatsoever. Um, there are a couple of other interesting formulations of aspirin. So... There's suppository, um, a 300 milligram suppository, which we use uh, quite often in stroke, debilitating stroke, because when they've had a stroke, often their swallow is gone. Yeah. Uh, and we do need to load them up in an antiplatelet quite early on. We can use rectal aspirin for that, it's always an option. Did not know that. Yeah, it's a good one. 
Um, there is such, there is actually such product as IV aspirin as well, uh, but it's, well, it's very, very complicated stuff and <laughs> interventional radiologists might get involved in that sort of thing, but we don't use that routinely. Sure. The other interesting one to very briefly touch on is, um, is enteric coated aspirin. Mm. So aspirin, as we've said before, risk of GI, um, GI side effects, GI ulcers and things like that. So there was a preparation, an enteric coated preparation that was created quite a few years ago in an effort to try and protect against the risk of GI bleed. Now, actually, there's some evidence that's come out recently um, that said that there, it almost has no effect whatsoever in reducing that risk. Mm. Um, so it, it's not very, there's not a lot of evidence to say that actually stops people from having GI-related side effects. Sure. The other piece of evidence is because aspirin is a acid labile drug, mm. it is absorbed in the stomach. It needs to be in an acidic environment to be absorbed effectively. Mm. Now, when you put an enteric coat on it, you stop it from being absorbed in the stomach and it goes down into the, uh, the gut, the duodenum um, intestinal tract, where the enteric coating dissolves mm. and the aspirin's there, but it's not in an acidic environment anymore, it's in an alkaline environment and you don't get absorption into the body, mm. into the bloodstream. So it is theorized that enteric coated aspirin is less effective than normal aspirin or dispersal aspirin. Um, not brilliant evidence um, either way, it's more of a theory. Um, but generally now we don't ever advocate starting patients on enteric coated aspirin. They should go on either normal release aspirin or dispersible aspirin. Right then, I think that is anti-plate is covered. That's part one done. Thank you so much, Canal. Pleasure. And uh, see you in part two. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. That was the Take Orally Therapeutics Antithrombotics Part 1 Antiplatelets Podcast. Thanks for listening. Uh, don't forget you can find more information at www.takeorally.com. You'll find the blog entry for this uh, podcast. We'll put up some links to some of the guidelines that we mentioned as well as the Take Visually for this podcast. Uh, you can also find Take Orally on both Facebook and Twitter. For more information on research and educational opportunities within acute medicine, emergency medicine and major trauma, you can find NUH Dream on both Facebook and Twitter.